Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod. I'm Laura Shaw-Frank, the director of AGC's William Pechak Contemporary Jewish Life Department and the acting director of AGC New York. This week, I'm guest co-hosting People of the Pod. I'm thrilled to be here today with Saeed Khan. And because we're going to be in conversation today, I'm going to have Saeed introduce himself. Hi, Saeed. Hi, Laura. Thanks so much. So a little bit about myself. Currently, I'm a senior lecturer in Near East and Asian Studies and Global Studies, along with being Director of Global Studies at Wayne State University in Detroit, where I'm also a research fellow at the Center for the Study of Citizenship. It's so great to have you here, Saeed, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So today we're talking about this light topic of 9-11. And as we all know, we're at the 20th anniversary this year, which is, of course, causing a lot of reflection in all of us. We're all kind of thinking back and wondering about what the last 20 years have brought, what we've learned, what lessons we can take away, and, you know, doing all the reflecting that one does on an anniversary like this. And I want to start by just sort of noting that 9-11 is one of these historical moments that everybody remembers where they were. It's like, you know, I don't remember this because I wasn't born yet, but like when JFK was shot. So as we remember 9-11, I want to start out with that very personal aspect of the day. I think we often get caught up in what historical events mean in a larger context, and we kind of forget to focus on the many individual stories that make up that context. So I wanted to hear from you, Saeed, where were you on 9-11 and how did that day shape you? Well, I was where I usually would be on a a weekday morning at that time, around 8.30. I had just made myself a cup of tea and decided to settle down on the couch to watch the Today Show. No endorsement for NBC here, but that was just what I usually watched in the mornings. And I remember all of a sudden the show cut back from commercial to a live shot from Rockefeller Center all the way downtown in Manhattan, showing one of the Twin Towers with smoke coming out of it, smoldering. And I'm thinking, okay, I wonder what happened now. And I remember it being a beautiful blue sky day at the same time, much as it was in Detroit at the time. Were you in Detroit? I was in suburban Detroit in Rochester Hills in my home, and I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, okay, going through the differential of what it could be, maybe it was a traffic copter or a small plane, and part of it was echoing what the speculation was from the uh, the Today Show hosts. And within about 15 minutes, uh, the most shocking thing imaginable happened. Watched the second tower get hit by uh, the second plane. The explosion, and just thinking with a little bit more of expletive language being used at the time, oh boy, that was something. What I realized from that point was two emotions. One was thinking, oh boy, I hope it's not a Muslim. Because by then, there was a series of incidents that had been happening in the United States where Muslims were being blamed. The first World Trade Center attack, as you might know, happened in 1993 with Ramzi Youssef. Fortunately, at the time, it was not that destructive. But it set off a kind of expectation, it seemed, that Oklahoma City, uh, TWA Flight 800, 
there seemed to be these presumptions that were out there that a lot of Muslims actually started to internalize to the point of saying, please, God, I hope it's not a Muslim behind this for several reasons. And the other emotion I remember was hearing the phone ring. And that day, the phone never stopped ringing. In fact, we used to have a cordless phone, which you would put on the recharging station. And I remember that was the first time that that phone's battery actually died because it was always in my hand because the phone just kept ringing that often. Friends, family members, old college roommates checking in saying, hey, are you okay? What's going on? And coming up or trying to come up with answers. On the one hand, I was throwing the kitchen sink at rationalizing the WTO had just convened and there were protests, some of them a little bit violent. I'm thinking maybe it's somebody from there. Always wondering with that sinking feeling that was this a Muslim perpetrated action? And as the day unfurled, and of course, I'm sure like you, glued to the television, watching the news unfurl about the Pentagon being hit, uh, the news of another plane heading for Washington, but it was brought down in rural Pennsylvania. And then, of course, the unforgettable images of watching the two towers go down. And for somebody like myself who moved to America at the age of eight from Great Britain, in 1975, I only knew a New York skyline that had the World Trade Center. And we lived in Far Rockaway for a couple of years before moving to Houston, uh, before then moving to Michigan in 1979. And the World Trade Center was just this iconic structure at the tip of Manhattan. And to just now imagine that those buildings were no longer there was almost too much to comprehend. Wow. It's so interesting to hear different people's stories and different people's perspectives on it. And yet here are such commonalities. I'd, I'll just start my story by just saying that I was not in America when it happened. I was living in Israel at the time. And I'll get to that in a second. But what you just said about the skyline of New York City, when we did come back to America, I just remember feeling like the skyline looked like somebody had its teeth knocked out. And it just, I couldn't adjust to that view as someone who had grown up in the tri-state area and had lived there most of my life. So I'll just share my story. I think it'll be so interesting for our listeners to see these two very different perspectives, but sharing that same sense of horror and, and dread. We were living in Jerusalem. My husband was doing a fellowship for Jewish educators, and I was then practicing law. And we had two tiny children. We had a three-and-a-half-year-old and an almost two-year-old, and I was eight months pregnant with number three. And the second intifada was going on at the time. And so we were living in Jerusalem. So we kind of never knew what disaster we were going to have to deal with before we went to sleep every night. And we had a number of close calls and things were blowing up all around us. And we never got on a bus. We never went to the center of town. It was a very difficult time. And that day, my husband was in Tel Aviv um, at some kind of a seminar, and he was sent home, of course, and he came home, and I was contracting like crazy and watching the TV the whole time. We actually, we got, sim it was very similar to your story. When I first heard, I was in the car, it was four in the afternoon in Israel, we were driving home from nursery school, and the phone rang, and it was my cousin, and she said something exactly like what you experienced. I think a traffic helicopter flew into the World Trade Center. And I said, what? And we turned on the radio and I'm trying to listen to the very fast-paced Hebrew and trying to understand what's going on. 
And when we got home, I put my kids in front of a video and I ran into the other room and I put on CNN. And like you, I saw the second, I didn't see the second tower hit by a plane, but I saw the second tower fall on live television. And it was just shocking to me. So before we moved to Israel, I was living in Manhattan and I was working in lower Manhattan at a law firm. And I was just at that moment thinking, oh my God, I, I don't know if my friends from my law firm are alive or dead. I don't know. I don't know anything. So I was kind of glued to the TV and it was a very difficult couple of weeks. My husband ended up going to the States for various reasons a couple of weeks later, and he was due to come back before my due date, a week before my due date. His flight was canceled back to, uh, no one was flying at the time and his flight was canceled and he couldn't get back when I thought he was going to get back. And I went into labor. I was so exhausted <laughs> um, from the whole experience. And I ended up giving birth without my husband there after 9-11. It was on September 28th. And the thing that I remember maybe the best about the whole thing was after my son was born, he's turning 20, obviously, after my son was born, I remember hearing in the hallway, they had taken him away to wash him or whatever, I heard a baby screaming with such rage and such fury. And I turned to my cousin who had come with me to the birth, who lives in Israel, and I said to her, that's my baby. And she said, how do you know? And I said, I just know that's my baby. And sure enough, it was. It was just, he was so filled with all of the anxiety and stress that I had been living with during the Intifada and during 9-11. And it was just, uh, it just came out. <laughs> so that was my story. It was really a very bizarre experience for me to be in Israel. Usually we had been the ones that were getting the phone calls. Are you okay? Are you okay? Because it was during the second Intifada. And this time we were trying to reach America and trying to say, are you okay? Are you okay? And of course we couldn't get through to anybody. It was a really bizarre and very, very terrible time. Well, you know, you're talking, Laura, about just how things became inverted. I think for so many people, and maybe even for the world, there was this moment of inversion. I look back on it and I think about, on the one hand, you're talking about how your son was screaming. I remember silence. And one mm. of the eeriest feelings was, I mean, your husband, of course, was stranded here because they closed the airspace and air travel was not allowed for quite a while. And I remember looking out, because it was obviously September, mid-September, and there would be these wonderfully blue and sunny skies, and there were no contrails. There was not a single contrail of an airplane. And here in the Metro Detroit area, because we're in the Midwest, we are part of the flyover states, it's not uncommon to see uh, air, um, contrails going back and forth. And to see none dotting or trailing the sky was just too weird, except one afternoon over the city of Detroit, there was a contrail that was a, a circle, almost looked like a halo. And you realized that that was an Air Force F-16 that had been scrambled because there was an alert. Oh my and God. so it was now patrolling over Detroit just to make sure everything was okay. So Everybody was just on tenderhooks. The other thing I remember is on one of my first flights into New York, which was probably about a couple of years after 9-11, landing at Newark. And our approach was coming from the north to the south, which meant that we were parallel to Manhattan. And I just remember that 
as we're landing and, you know, they tell everybody, you got to be in your seats, you got to be buckled up, how people were craning over to see out the window, to see the absence of the World Trade Center. And some people, of course, violated the seatbelt rule. The flight attendants made just one perfunctory announcement, but I think they also empathized with what a moment this was and how people wanted to see this emptiness down by Battery Park. It was, it was just so powerful. Oh, I, it's, I, I can just imagine that moment. It feels so resonant for me. It's amazing that in moments like that, as you said, there's so many contrasts and things turned on their head. So let's turn for a second now with just think a little bit about perspective, because I guess, you know, in the moment, it's so hard to figure out where you are and where you stand and things feel so unsure and so frightening. So what are you thinking about today as an American and as a Muslim now on this 20th anniversary? You know, 20 years on, Laura, I feel it's the first time or one of the first times that I can grieve for 9-11. When 9-11 happened, being a Muslim eclipsed everything, not by our own choice, but the fact was that in a way we couldn't share the collective grief because of the spotlight and the scrutiny and the suspicion that was that was placed on, on Muslims as a whole. And as a result of it, it created a divergence that there was, I think, a natural inclination of Muslims going through the five stages of grief, trying to process what happened, trying to then create that shared experience that you said, that bond. I mean, today, as you mentioned about JFK, People instinctively will say, oh, yeah, I was doing this, I was doing that. Or when John Lennon was, was killed in 1980, uh, people can have that moment even without saying everything explicitly. And there was this time where I know I felt reluctant to talk about what I felt I was going through on 9-11 and in the days after, because it was either dismissed, mocked, or treated with suspicion, saying, okay, you're just throwing us a line. You probably were happy about it. You probably rejoiced about it. You might have, quote unquote, been involved in it. And to have that kind of delayed ability to respond, I think is what I remember the most and probably what I'm thinking about now. At the same time, I also have to think that it's been 20 years of my life It's been roughly a little under 10% of this nation's entire history that we're talking about with 20 years, almost an entire generation. You know, you mentioned your son is 20. My students on campus, most of them, except for a couple of the seniors and the juniors and maybe grad students, they weren't even born. And even if they had been born, they were simply too young to even comprehend what was going on. But their lives have been shaped by it. Our lives have, of course, been shaped by it. And it's a moment to kind of take stock and say, well, how far have we come? Uh, Those are some of the many things going through my mind. I want to follow up on something you said about your inability to grieve at that time because of being targeted in many ways as a Muslim and your ability to maybe have that more ability to grieve today. Do you think that some of the terrible Islamophobia that arose in the immediate wake of 9-11 
has eased in the 20 years since? Are we still struggling with the same level of Islamophobia? How do you think that that's developed over the past 20 years? It's a great question, Laura. It's it's interesting because there certainly was an uptick in Islamophobia after 9-11, and then it started to decrease over the passage of time. But then somewhere around 2008, it reemerged and it became more intensified, and it came about for different reasons. The Islamophobia was not any longer connected to 9-11. It seemed as though it was in many ways mirroring anti-Semitism, that it is a hatred that is more of a pathology, that is not really connected by something that has happened or has caused injury. It was just plain naked hatred. And you saw it being weaponized, you saw it being politicized by politicians, talk show hosts. So the morphology of Islamophobia changed dramatically. And when I look at Islamophobia today, I don't really see it connected to 9-11. But 9-11 in many ways normalized the idea of Islamophobia taking on a more public and dare I even say an accepted expression. That makes a lot of sense and is terrible in, in its sense. What you said about the morphology of Islamophobia makes so much sense to me, and, and you yourself linked it to anti-Semitism, which I think is unfortunately so true and so sad. I remember in the wake of 9-11 worrying immediately that there was going to be some kind of a an accusation that the Jews perpetrated it, and of course there was in the immediate thereafter, including all these crazy allegations, which of course were not true, that no Jews were killed in 9-11. Isn't it interesting? No Jews showed up for work that day and, and all these things. And I'm interestingly seeing a lot of those same anti-Semitic tropes and um, conspiracy theories resuming again today, 9-11, the Jews did it kind of thing, or the Zionists did it. And it occurs to me that there's this commonality of conspiracy theories that underlie the two hatreds that morph and change in different moments and that come up from underneath in certain moments to take more public roles and more public uh, faces and become more accepted and less accepted. This kind of weaponizing has unfortunately just become very normalized. But at the same time, I think Muslims and Jews have both recognized with the whole 9-11 episode that the age of innocence is over. I think obviously for the Jewish community, there really wasn't an age of innocence. I think there was always the need for vigilance. And given the size of the community and its more recent history in the 20th century, recognizing that you don't take anything for granted, you don't get complacent. I think for Muslim Americans, 9-11 shattered that notion of the American dream of you work hard, you assimilate, you keep your nose out of other people's business, you go about things, even being a model American or a model minority, and it's just not enough. It's all going to come down to what you look like, how you conduct yourself as being outside the majority norm. And it ironically created, I think, for many who then became active and aware of the commonalities with the Jewish community 
if they didn't exist before. I think the Jewish community, it's interesting, and I'm sort of reflecting on what you said about it being baked into the being American and to being Muslim in America. I think that that baked in phrase applies to the Jewish community too, interestingly, in a slightly different way. I think that even though the attacks were not attacks on the Jewish community, they made the Jewish community feel less safe, not just as Americans, but specifically as Jews, which is interesting. And I'm kind of trying to unpack that a little in my mind. I think that some of it was the conspiracy theories that arose afterwards that Jews had caused it or were in cahoots and the anti-Semitic trope that Jews are sort of controlling the world and in cahoots to destroy others. I think the juxtaposition to the Second Intifada was a piece of it. It made it feel complicated because that, you know, in the name of this extremism that is being carried out in the name of Islam, which we know is not what Islam is. But this extremism that's being carried out in the name of Islam was happening on both sides of the ocean in the two largest Jewish communities. So one was targeting the Jewish community, one was not, but it was hard to sort of tease that out, I think. The attacks were in two Jewish centers, thinking about New York and Washington, where New York is the largest Jewish community in the country. Washington is one of the larger ones. So I think it became baked in for us too. I was wondering, as I was thinking about speaking with you today, I was wondering how many of these synagogue security initiatives that have sprung up in the past decade or two decades, how many of them happened in the wake of 9-11? And I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but I'm imagining that probably quite a few of them. And I think, lastly, this is sort of an interesting thing. And I'm wondering what you would say about this vis-a-vis the Muslim community, which is, is much more diverse in terms of geographical locations around the world in the Jewish community in the 21st century. I think a little bit the American Jewish community ended up feeling more connected to the Israeli Jewish community in that moment, temporarily. We we have since struggled with the relationship between the two communities. But I think that the understanding of life with terrorism, which is something that American Jews had sort of not been privy to and didn't really understand where Israelis were coming from when they talked about the difficulties of living um, with terrorism. That there was, This was a moment that where there was a meeting of the minds that I felt very, very intensely as an American living in Israel at the time. I think that's faded, but it was a very interesting moment. Did you feel that there was any sort of feeling of connection with Muslims around the world in that moment after 9-11 in a feeling of perhaps dismay or the fear that you had that we're going to find out that it was a Muslim who did this? It seems as though the rest of the Muslim world at that point had empathy for Muslims living in America. As they were monitoring the developments of the USA Patriot Act, profiling and hearing stories both in the media as well as anecdotally of personal accounts, that was resonating very heavily The second, I think, dimension to your question is also very interesting, that did it create a connection with Muslims in America to say, okay, maybe things aren't so great here, maybe we should quote-unquote go back home. And I think for a lot of us, I mean, home is America. I was born in Pakistan, I never lived there, and I spent the first eight years of my life in England. So if there was a place for me to consider going back home, it would be England. But then the 7-7 bombings in 2005 certainly changed the dynamics in England as well regarding Islamophobia and the attitudes toward Muslims. But this idea that I remember hearing from a lot of friends and others saying, where do we go now? Of course, Canada was 
it always seems to be the the go-to place, especially living here in the metro Detroit area. It's literally right across the river. But I remember telling a lot of my friends who were entertaining that idea, how much are you going to run? And how much worse do you think it could get elsewhere? And then do you pick up and maintain nomadic lifestyles in perpetuity? So those were some of the conversations that were happening. But I'd like to go ahead and point out the whole thing of the age of innocence and what 9-11, I think, also did in the subsequent years. When it came to the Muslim community, I think that there are some who unfortunately harbor negative perceptions of it. And yet at the same time, those same people seem to also have a kind of envy and look at the Jewish American community as a model to emulate. The irony of irony saying, boy, you know, they're really successful. They have really persevered here. They are cohesive. They are very much driven to succeed. And particularly in professional circles in the Muslim American community, they're definitely seen as a model community. It wasn't 9-11 that necessarily created a change in perception among Muslim Americans toward Jewish Americans, but I'll tell you when things did seem to change in the voices that I would hear, and that was Charlottesville. When Charlottesville happened and the awful images and the chants of Jews will not replace us started to make their way around the media, I remember hearing from a lot of Muslim Americans saying, oh my goodness, they didn't achieve, I guess, social tenure in the sense that they're not fully vested, that all of that work, all of that struggle, and they're still vulnerable. And I think that that was a real moment of epiphany to recognize not only then the fact that certain things are simply always unresolved in America, but what they shared with the Jewish American experience, that no matter how long they may have been in the United States before the Muslim American community, no matter how they are perceived as being a successful minority community, all of that can come down like a Jenga game based on the whims of what is the social and political climate in the country. It's interesting. I think that that moment of Charlottesville was a similar moment for the Jewish community. And I wonder now how much it gave rise to our two communities turning to increased work together to fight hatreds that we see are sadly linked in certain really powerful ways. I remember when in 2016, when the election happened and the result came out, the very next day, getting a call from the Detroit AJC chapter, fortunately, it was not an initial call. We're very lucky here in, in the metro Detroit area where the Muslim and the Jewish community have worked together for years. AJC reached out and said, hey, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about the implications. And I remember saying, you tell me the time, you tell me the day, and I'm there. And I remember the very next day, we had a few of us from the Muslim American community who've been doing a lot of engagement with the Jewish community and members of AJC sitting down at dinner, trying to figure out where's this going. We did that weeks before even inauguration day. 
And I agree with you that it was understanding what was and what could be coming over the horizon. I think that one lesson that we have learned, if there is a lesson to take away from 9-11, is the importance of reaching across these barriers that our communities have sometimes faced in the past and continue to face. It's, I don't want to paint you know, a Pollyanna-ish picture of what is still a current struggle. Of course, there's certainly all kinds of complications, but the fact that we are able to work together in various very important aspects to me is so powerful and is maybe the most hopeful takeaway that we can have on this 20th anniversary of 9-11, that in the face of this, it took a while, but in the face of this moment of such despair for our country that perhaps our communities over the course of the past 20 years have learned that working together will bring some better results for our country and for our two communities as well. Well, I think one of the things, Laura, that it has done uh, is it serves as a reminder that Jews and Muslims have actually been neighbors for far longer than even the United States has been a country. And within that time, the vast majority of it was one of coexistence. Being a historian certainly helps remind me of that, whether it would be in a place like Spain or Morocco or Salonika in the former Ottoman Empire. It provides not only a template, it not only provides a go-to place, but it also provides them that kind of promise and potential that these are communities that have such a very rich history together. What I find to be interesting is in the United States, it's the first time that both communities are minority communities. And as a result of it, it's led to us devising new ways of engagement, which is good because I think using an old playbook is not always helpful because it's oftentimes out of context. But to be able to then realize, as I think 9-11 has shown the two communities, that to borrow from a movie, if you're not first, you're last, we are two communities that both are vulnerable to the caprices of others. And that's not necessarily a call for pessimism, but it's a call for opportunity. I couldn't agree more. I think that one thing that American Jewish history shows us is that for since the American Jewish community began here a few hundred years ago, it's been clear that as go one minority, go all minorities in the American population. And I don't want to conflate the experience. Obviously, each minority has a different experience in America, and there are many different forms of, of discrimination and of opportunity that different minority communities feel. But one thing that is abundantly clear is that we are definitely better off when we work together. I look at in Europe as well, places like Germany and elsewhere where Muslim and Jewish communities coming together to champion and defend kashrut and halal preparation of food. It's just fascinating to see then these moments of commonality where two minority communities recognize not only how much they have and share in their experiences, but where collaboration becomes vital. Could not agree with you more. I'll end with just an interesting anecdote. My son, Mr. 9-11, who was born on <laughs> September 28th, he's a very collaborative, intergroup relations kind of young man. And fascinatingly, when he had to choose a foreign language to study in high school, what do you think he picked? Arabic. 
And he has studied four years of Arabic. He's also pretty fluent in Hebrew and plans when he goes to college. He's on his second gap year in Israel now, but when he goes to college, wants to study diplomacy, um, Arabic in the environment and try to move toward environmental solutions and bringing parties together in the Middle East, which to me feels like just kind of the right way for a kid born on September 28th, 2001 to end up. It is quite literally the promise of the future then. Indeed, indeed. Saeed, it was just wonderful speaking with you today. I know I'll be thinking of you on 9-11. And um, I hope for our country that it will be a day of healing, a day of remembrance, when we can take stock, when we can remember the victims and move forward and to a more hopeful America. And hopefully a more unified America. Please, please, please God. Inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. Please join us on Friday, September 10th for a special Advocacy Anywhere program, AGC Remembers, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Together with Jewish, Christian, and Muslim faith leaders, we will mourn the losses experienced that day and honor the resilience we found in its aftermath. To register, go to agc.org slash advocacyanywhere. We'll also include a link to register in our show notes. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Laura, thank you so much for that conversation with Saeed. It's got me thinking back to this time 20 years ago. I had just moved to New York from North Carolina to study religion reporting uh, just a month before the terrorist attacks. That's crazy. A month before? Yeah, it was quite an introduction to New York City (laughs) coming from North Carolina. What was it like that day? It was... Crystal blue, sunny, and I was in my apartment getting ready to cover the city council elections in Far East Brooklyn. My beat was Far East New York, where my grandfather had actually grown up. And I was really looking forward to the train ride and to my reporting excursion that day. I know where you were. Yes. As you heard from my interview, I was very far away. I was in Israel. And I felt very distant from America at that moment. And actually, it's interesting, just the other day, it was this beautiful day, just like you were describing, it was like a 9-11. The sky was so blue and the weather was so perfect. And my husband said to me and to my son, this reminds me of the weather on 9-11. And my son, who's 16, he wasn't born before the attacks, he looked at my husband, he was so angry. He said, you can't say that. You weren't even here. You were in Israel. And my husband said, but I know what it was like. And my son said, no, you don't. You did not know what it was like. You were far away. And we settled finally on, my husband had to say, that it reminds him of what he heard the weather looked like on 9-11 or what he read the weather looked like on 9-11. And it actually like really brought home that feeling of distance that we had at that time, being so far away from our home country. Yeah, yeah. You know what? No matter where you were that day, it had a profound effect, which I discovered when I moved to Chicago a little over a year later. I mean, even if the events of that day weren't central to that city's existence, you know, I met young Muslims who were heading off to college 10 years later, whose childhood had been shaped by the discrimination that was generated from 9-11. I met survivors. I met families who lost their fathers, who happened to be on business trips to New York that day. I mean, it had a profound effect, no matter where you were. It's really true, because you would think that living in Israel, it's, it's not America. It's a foreign country. But even there, people were so 
tuned into what was going on in America. And part of that was because Israel was living through the Second Intifada and, and through its own series of terrorist attacks, even added all together. They didn't kill the number of people that were killed on 9-11. But nonetheless, this sort of constant stream of terror attacks. And Israelis were looking with enormous compassion and pity at America in that moment. So it, it deeply affected them as well. I think it also deeply affected the connection between Israeli and American Jews who felt very bonded in that moment. You know, it's hard, though, in that moment to realize how it's shaping you and what lessons can be learned from it. I returned to that same journalism school, Columbia, this past summer to help teach religion reporting students and realized that some, if not most of them really, had no recollection of 9-11 happening. They'd been preschoolers, kindergartners, and frankly, now they were going through their own trauma, a global pandemic that who knows, journalism students 20 years from now may not be able to fathom. But trying to fathom history is the role of a journalist. It's the role of a citizen, frankly. Hopefully, you know, citizens 20 years from now will look back on the coronavirus pandemic and heed the lessons learned and look back on the terrorist attacks from 40 years <laughs> ago then and heed the lessons learned. For that matter, you know, heed the lessons learned January 27th, 1945, right? That date, of course, is the liberation of Auschwitz. I mean, the moment of truth for the world to see the horrors of the Holocaust. We can never forget. It's so true what you say about sort of heeding the lessons learned and that in the moment, it's so hard to do that. And I think that's something you and I share in common, Manya, as a journalist and a historian, that we see that the passage of time allows you to sort of create in your head some coherent structure, a narrative, a thesis about what happened in the past. And it's the passage of time that really allows you to understand the lessons that have to be learned and the way we have to live differently in the future. Whereas in the moment, it's just shock and crisis as was the liberation of Auschwitz, as was 9-11 and the aftermath a few months after 9-11. And frankly, as we're living through now, I think we're still in the moment of shock and crisis. And it takes that passage of time to help us create what the lessons are to take away and to understand what the lessons are to take away. And I think you're right. I think in another 20 years, we'll have some lessons from the pandemic more clearly etched into our minds and into our agendas. And 40 years after 9-11, it's going to be very interesting to hear. We'll come back together. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm still learning. So hopefully I'll have more to say then. <laughs> Until then, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. As we continue to observe the Jewish High Holidays, don't miss last week's episode with guest host Dana Steiner, celebrity chef Jake Cohen, and host of the Sporkful podcast Dan Pashman as we discuss Jewish food, Jewish advocacy, and the Jewish New Year. Check it out. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag PeopleOfThePod, 
and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.